0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Next week, Connecticut residents will have the opportunity to vote in their municipal elections. But will they? Turnout is historically low as part of the reason that information is scarce about who's running. Coming up, the CTNewsJunkies.com's Doug Hardy will join us to talk about a tool to help people learn more about local candidates. But first, Connecticut had the distinction of being the last state to pass a new budget. Thankfully, the General Assembly reached a bipartisan agreement late last week. Now, what's in the $41 billion deal? Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror, joins us this hour to break down the plan. Part of the budget negotiations was whether the legislature could help Hartford avoid bankruptcy. This budget includes aid for the capital city. Mayor Brunin will join us later to talk about that. And we'll hear from Connecticut's Consumer Council about one gimmick lawmakers used to plug the deficit. More on that later. Now, do you have a question about the budget? What's your take on the plan lawmakers agreed to? You can join the conversation 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Mark Pasniokis again, capital Bureau chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. You've been doing this a long time. How extraordinary was this uh, last year dealing with uh, no budget for nearly four months?
2: It was unprecedented, really. Uh, this is the longest they've ever gone without a budget. Uh, I, I will admit to being a reporter here in 1991 when the state of Connecticut adopted its first broad-based taxes on wages, Uh, That fight uh, lasted into late August, Uh, but there were some big differences between that year and this year. In 1991, you had this target, this solution, the income tax. Uh, And if you could round up the votes to do that, you were done. You You had landed the great white whale and you could move on. This year, there was no great white whale out there. You had a bunch of little minnows and you had a bunch of gimmicks and, you know, and a bunch of hard decisions to make about cutting services. Uh, So that's, you know, one of the reasons why it took so darn long, uh, well into the fall.
0: And we saw uh, the makeup of the legislature different than in the past years. Uh, tell us again how the the structure of the Senate and the House uh, contributed to this Absolutely. long
2: Absolutely. That's an- another big difference. Uh, Connecticut, for the first time, really has a 50-50 legislature. Uh, it is exactly 50-50 in the state Senate, 18-18. The Democrats have a teeny edge in that the lieutenant governor, a Democrat, can break tie votes. And in the House, the advantage is 79-72. So if uh, the Republicans could coax four Democrats to come over on any issue, they would have a 76-75 majority. So that definitely contributed to the degree of difficulty in getting a final budget deal. You know, we had other factors. You have a very strong-willed governor. Who is winding down? He is a lame duck. Everybody knows he's not coming back after the 2018 election. Uh, His popularity uh, is in the 20s, you know, according to the last public poll we've seen. All that adds up uh, adds up to a situation in which really nobody has the clout to move this thing forward. And that's why it's one of the reasons why it dragged on and on and on.
0: This version that the House and Senate voted on late last week, who was in the room working on that deal?
2: Well, and and that's very important because in the room, through most of it, was the six top leaders of the House and Senate, plus at different times some of their senior members who were involved in budget and some senior staff. But excluded was the Molloy administration and its Office of Policy and Management. And there are two ways of looking at that. One is they viewed the governor not as a constructive influence in these talks, uh, that he was a bit of a buzzkill saying, no, you can't do that. The flip side of that is some of the time, the Office of Policy Management is pointing out a problem with something early, and there's a reason for why they shouldn't do something. that was the dynamic. Uh, some of it was personalities, some of it was uh, the legislative leaders decided we want to we want to land this thing, we want to finish it and we want to go home. So again, every budget, every tough budget, I should say, has a little bit of uh, willful ignorance mm-hmm. that you don't want to look too closely at something. Um, and we will, uh, we will see the results of that, I think, in the coming days and weeks and potentially months. Um, most budgets in tough years, they don't age well. They don't look better the longer you look at it. You see things. You see things that are uh, accounting gimmicks, budgeting gimmicks. You see potential shortfalls. Uh, and you see things that maybe are not the greatest – public policy. You know, you see things that are non-fiscal items that are tucked into budgets. Uh, I wrote about one this morning, you know, where they changed the rules for how the state elections enforcement commission can investigate legislators, among others. They have a tight deadline now of one year to get their work done because legislators were annoyed at how long some of these things took. And legislators, unlike the rest of us, when they get annoyed at how government interacts with them, they can change that. Mm.
0: Now, we've heard uh, through the months of gridlock, you know, a lot of angst from towns because uh, they were running out of money. So when when we look at this budget deal, this $41 billion budget deal, Mark, uh, how does that play out in terms of uh, what kind of aid towns are getting, uh, contributions and teacher pensions? That was something that uh, Malloy had brought up uh, in his budget proposal. So can you talk talk us through some of the compromise?
2: So there was a lot going on there. Now, the governor wanted to make a structural change in how teacher pensions are funded. Uh, Connecticut is one of the few states that teacher pensions are funded by the state as well as by teacher contributions. So he started off by saying, we're going to have the towns contribute. Um, the towns pushed back and said, wait a minute, this is, uh, this is a state function. Um, you guys have kind of screwed it up by not funding it well. Don't push the liability onto us. Uh, that was a huge, huge issue. state uh, the the Governor also, when there was a as, when it became clear that they were not going be able to pass a budget by the start of the fiscal year in July, he through an executive order, increased pressure on the legislature and and on the community saying, "Look, I don't have the authority to continue sending state aid out through the education cost sharing program." That's the major state aid program. I think it's three-quarters of all state aid funnels through that program. Uh, The governor said there's no budget. There's no functioning formula to distribute that. So that was a huge club, and that's what was driving cities and towns crazy, the prospect of losing that money. The governor was going to make payments to the most distressed communities communities because there is a constitutional obligation to provide free public Mm -hmm. education. And in about 30 communities without the state funding, there would be no free public education. Um, So at the end of the day, in this budget, the cuts to education cost sharing were about one and a half percent. And the 30 cities and towns with the greatest need, their funding was not cut uh, funding to other communities, you know, more well-to-do communities, uh, West Hartford. I think it was five percent over the two years cut. Uh, Fairfield, about eight uh, percent. But on average, I think it was about a five percent cut. And the, the rationale is these are communities that can afford to make up the difference. Not going to be easy, um, but. That's that's where they ended up. So it was not a disaster for the cities and towns. At the end of the day, they were pretty happy.
0: So who were the losers in this budget?
2: The losers in the budget? Teachers are not terribly happy. Um, they ha- Their contributions for their pensions went from 6 to 7%. And there's a question as to whether these are really pension contributions or was it really a hidden tax? And the reason I say that is for every dollar that the teachers put in additionally, uh, the state cuts back its contributions. So is this really a pension contribution or was this the state's way to cut its expenditures there? Um, You know, the, the plus side as far as public policy goes um, raising the teacher contributions is puts it more in line with national averages and employee contributions into pensions are stable. Um, uh, unlike the General Assembly, uh, employees, teachers cannot decide from year to year, we're not going to make our contribution. State of Connecticut over 30, 40 years quite often has decided they're not going to make its contribution or not make all of its contribution. And that's one of the major reasons why the state of Connecticut was in the dire fiscal straits it found itself in this year.
0: Mm. Now, what about UConn? The Republican uh, proposal really hit UConn hard with compromise. How much will they be losing?
2: Okay, so in the Republican budget, which unexpectedly passed, and uh, and that's important to keep in mind. There's a question. There's always a question when the minority party puts forward a budget: Is this meant to be? a working budget to run the state on? Or is this meant to be a political statement saying, hey, th- these are the areas, you know, we think are overfunded, um, or this is how we're just going to get to a balanced budget and we don't have to worry because we don't have to live with it? Well, this time it passed. And one of the cuts in there was to UConn would have lost at least $240 million. Uh, the governor and others... Uh, spoke out very strongly against this for a variety of reasons. One, um, Connecticut, when national groups look at Connecticut uh, as a place to do business, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that Connecticut gets bad grades on. But uh, aside from quality of life, the, the two things that Connecticut uni- you know uniformly gets good grades on is the quality of its education and the quality of its workforce. And those two things are closely linked. So the governor was saying, This is insanity to gut higher education uh, at this point. So instead of a 240 million dollar cut, the governor, by the way, had put in you know 20, 30. I think he got as high as 40 million in a compromise he reached with Democrats that didn't pass. This gets it above 60 million, 65 million, somewhere in there. So it's going to be felt, but it's not going to be disastrous, certainly.
0: Mark Pasniokas is in the studio with us. He's a Capitol Bureau chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, Today, we're learning more about that budget deal that was finally voted on uh, late last week. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You made the point earlier, Mark, that uh, members of Malloy's office and the governor, as well as OPM, were not in uh, the room when that final deal was figured out before the vote. Uh, One of the consequences, let's talk about this error that we've heard that it's in the budget, a billion-dollar error related to the hospital. Attacks? Well,
2: if yeah, it depends on how many years you're looking at. But okay, so we're talking about the hospital provider tax, which is really hard for reporters to explain, and for legislators to understand, and certainly for the public to embrace. Uh, in many ways, it is a scam. <laughs> it's a scam practice by, uh, to one degree or another, by 49 of the 50 states. And it's considered a scam in that it is a way to boost federal reimbursements in Medicaid. Medicaid is a program, a healthcare program, for, you know, generally for poorer people. Uh, It's 50% funded by the feds, 50% by the state. So the rationale behind this is if you, if you raise ta- taxes on the provision of services by hospitals you can then up the reimbursements to them and then you can get federal matching funds all right everybody follow that and this has been again called you know a, re- a real scam it's really been going on for nine ten years uh, and again there are About 30 states that do it heavily and the rest to one degree or another. Now, the problem that came up, this is technical stuff. The Molloy administration said the legislature, the language to raise this hospital provider tax uh, is flawed. Um, The hospital association, which provided some of the language, says no, they're comfortable with it. Now, the hospitals certainly have a vested interest in making sure this works and the federal money comes in. Now, one of the administration's concerns is that the way it was written, it it looked like the hospitals would get their additional money regardless of whether the feds reimbursed it. Now, as a practical matter, if that was the case, uh, the General Assembly probably would come back and repeal that because in the immediate budget this year, next year, the net increase in this in this little accounting game was about 137 million dollars each year. So if this blows up, there's a hole in the budget. So but it's it's one of you know, it's one of the many ways that there are consequences intended and unintended when you start doing these things
0: you called that a scam coming up we're gonna be talking about joe biden
2: (laughs) called it a scam too by the way
0: (laughs) we'll pin it on him Uh, we'll be talking about another gimmick in the budget that actually raids uh, energy funds that'll be coming up a little bit later Uh, the question before we had to break uh, mark uh, is the governor going to sign this he's got a deadline coming up he
2: has a deadline of wednesday um okay here are the brief Arguments that uh, are being made to the governor and that the governor has to consider. If he vetoes it, he knows he will not throw the state back into chaos because this passed by veto-proof margins, uh, by huge margins. Um, And if this thing turns out not to be balanced or if there are other defects that become apparent the longer we look at it, if the governor has vetoed it, he will be in a position to say, I told you so. Not that our governor would do that. Um, but no, I mean, it, it, it gives him some distance. The downside is a huge political risk, which is going into your last full year as governor. Uh, he's not running in 2018. Do you want to really end this year and kind of go into the next year having the legislature, you know, kind of dope slap you with an override on the biggest issue? Of the season which is the budget and oh by the way you know we're approaching november they come back in february and their first order of business is the governor will give them budget revisions for the second year of the (laughs) biennium and we get to start this debate all over again
0: i don't envy your job mark
2: (laughs) well fortunately i have keith faniff who is the lead writer on the budget um, and we're trying to keep him hydrated and, and, and well-nourished.
0: Mark Pazniokas is here with us from the Connecticut Mirror as we talk about the budget the Connecticut General Assembly finally agreed on nearly four months late. After the break, we'll hear from Hartford's mayor about the aid package for the capital city. Will it be enough to avoid bankruptcy? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpith Today, we're talking about the $41 billion budget the Connecticut General Assembly passed late last week. In studio with me, Mark Pasniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Now, for months, Hartford's mayor, Luke Bronin, has been traveling from town to town, stressing that Connecticut needs to help its capital city, a city with fiscal disadvantages, like a small tax base, but with one of the highest property tax rates in the state. Now, without significant state aid, Bronin and others had warned that bankruptcy for Hartford might be a Possibility. With the budget deal passed last week, did Hartford get what it's been asking for? Joining us now is Mayor Luke Bronin. He's on the phone with us. Mayor Bronan, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Lucy. Good to be with you. Hey, Paz.
0: Good morning, Mayor. So tell us, uh, Mayor Bronin, did you get what you're
1: asking for? Uh, well, first, you know, I-, I think it's important to talk about what we were asking for uh, because we were not asking for uh, just a check to be cut or a band aid or a bailout. You know, what we were asking for was the tools that would make it possible to achieve long-term sustainability outside of a Chapter 9 bankruptcy. And I do think that the budget created those tools. Uh, you know, the budget set up uh, an accountability board, uh, which we have uh, said that we welcome uh, in the city of Hartford. Uh, the budget also uh, gave that board the ability to uh, uh, increase revenue to the city. And importantly, uh, it gave the state the authority to partner with the city as we look to restructure our debt. Uh, so it created important tools. Uh, there's no uh, check coming to the city of Hartford, uh, you know, in, in immediate days other than the uh, normal money that flows as part of a uh, state budget. Uh, but it creates tools that I think are important and if used right uh, in partnership between the city and the state. Uh, I believe, can get us to a sustainable place.
0: Mayor Bronin, you sound defensive. Is that because this is what you've heard from suburbs on your tour of the state, uh, asking for help, that they see it as a band-aid, that the wealthier uh, suburbs and taxpayers are helping Hartford out? It's another bailout?
1: No, not at all defensive. It's, it's because I have believed that one of the things I was most worried about is that what we would do uh, this year is simply buy some more time that uh, the state would just cut a check, and that would buy us another year and a half, but we'd continue to face this same crisis. You know, it's important to talk about the roots of this problem. Uh, You mentioned them a little bit, Lucy, but the root of this problem is that you have a capital city uh, that is small to begin with, where half of the property is non-taxable, and uh, where you have 40% less taxable property than uh, West Hartford barely more taxable property than small suburbs like Farmington and Glastonbury. That's the root of the problem. Now, on top of that, you have uh, a significant debt burden that that grows in the coming years, even though we haven't issued any new debt. Uh, And you've got uh, pension obligations and other long-term obligations. But the root of the problem is structural. And I was very wary of a fix that simply gave us some money to buy some time and stave off bankruptcy, but didn't actually solve the long-term problem.
2: Mark? Mayor, if um, if you could set aside the debt issues for a moment, when it comes to the day-to-day expenses, how close are you to sustainability? How much help will you need with this new uh, oversight board on that?
1: Well, look, it depends how you measure sustainability, <laughs> uh, Mark. You know, if we had a competitive mill rate, a competitive property tax rate, you know, let's say our property taxes were the same as uh, West Hartford's, which is uh, still actually pretty high tax rate uh, our gap would be so big that you could eliminate every dollar of debt, every dollar of pension obligations and your entire police force and you would still have a deficit uh, that's how big the real structural problem is uh, now we don't have a competitive tax rate we've got a tax rate that's too high and that means our gap right now is about 50 million and it grows as the debt service increases uh, the solution has got to involve all the stakeholders. It's got to involve the state uh, using the tools that have been given. It's got to involve bondholders participating in the debt restructuring. It's got to involve labor, and uh, you know, over the next few years, that's 50, you got to solve a fifty to eighty million dollar problem over the next uh, five years, per, you know, per year.
0: Uh, so the state budget includes an extra $40 million for Hartford. You mentioned um, some of the other uh, tools, including this oversight board. How how uh, deeply will they be involved with something like employee concessions moving forward, Mayor?
1: I, I don't know yet. I think the answer to that depends a lot on how willing uh, the, the remainder of our unions are to come to table and uh, make significant changes in their contracts. I, I I think there's not necessarily a need for the board to do all that much if uh, our partners are willing to come and be a a real part of the solution in in a significant way, you know, as our firefighters did last year.
0: And bankruptcy is off the table now.
1: But what I would say is, you know, this budget creates tools that make it possible to achieve a sustainable result outside of Chapter 9. And, you know, we we have uh, been preparing actively uh, by necessity for the possibility of a bankruptcy filing, our attention now shifts to using the tools that are in this budget and working in partnership with the state uh, to engage all of our stakeholders to try to achieve that long-term sustainable plan. You know, I think at the end of the day, we, can, we should be measuring success on only one thing, which is, are we able to look taxpayers in the eye and uh, residents and businesses alike in the eye we're not just kicking the can. We actually have a long-term plan that's going to create some stability and predictability so we can grow the capital city and create that momentum uh, so that the city can serve as an economic engine for the entire state. That's got to be our goal. Uh, the tools are there. But I, I do want to s- just say one thing, And I, uh, Lucy. Um, you said there's $40 million in there for the city of Hartford. There's no direct appropriation. You know, the, the board has the ability to authorize, uh, new revenue to the city and the, uh, OPM and the treasurer's office have the authority to work in partnership with the city to restructure our debt. Uh, but there's no check that's coming. There's, there's work that needs to be done and that's how it should be. Uh, you know, that's really what we asked for. We asked for the, the tools and a recognition that you've got a structure right now that's built to fail and that's why it's failing, but we can fix it if we focus on the long-term, not just on closing a one-year or two-year budget gap.
2: Do you think there is an understanding of the truly the challenges that Hartford faces? Because certainly at the Capitol and and out and around the state, sometimes this becomes uh, reduced to Hartford has screwed up as opposed to looking at some of the factors that are different, that separate Hartford even from New Haven, Bridgeport. Um, your poverty numbers are higher. Uh, your home ownership is very low. Um, has this been absorbed by the, the broader public at all as you've been going around? Now there's a softball I don't, I don't, I don't, for you, mayor. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> that, that might be a question I should ask you, uh, Pat. I mean, you, you you got your finger on the pulse as, as, as good as anybody. I, I hope that there is a growing understanding, a growing recognition of, of why we face this problem. You know, uh, Again, the root of the problem is you've got a suburb, you got a, a city that's built on the tax base of a suburb, and that just can't work. And you know the the way my predecessors dealt with that was to try to get from year to year with with one time fixes, whether it was uh, uh, you know taking uh, reserves or re- re- pushing debt payments out, delaying debt payments, or selling off parking garages. Uh, you can only do that so many times before you run out of tricks. Uh, but But the truth is those things that they did were symptoms of the problem and not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is you have a city that's too small uh, where we have concentrated poverty and where half of the property in the city is non-taxable. You know, you know, Paz, that the city's had uh, a law on the books for a long time that calls for fully funding a pilot formula, payments in lieu of taxes to reimburse uh, cities for their non-taxable property. We've got... uh, State property that pays no taxes, hospitals that pay no taxes, sewage treatment plants that serve the region that pay no taxes, uh, trash to energy facility that serves half the state and pays no taxes, then a huge concentration of social service agencies that pay no taxes. When you've got that structure uh, and the remainder that is taxable is too small to support even a basic bare bones level of service, you've got a structure that is not going to work unless you build a new partnership with the state.
0: Uh, Mayor Brennan, and I, and
1: I, So I hope that people uh, recognize that more and more, but I suspect we're going to have to keep uh, going out and, and, uh, and doing our best to talk about it.
0: Mayor Brunan, I wanted to go back to this uh, fiscal oversight board. I'm just wondering who would be sitting on this board, and then what is the role of the city council moving forward?
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, the board has a number of appointments. The governor has some appointments. The legislative leaders have some appointments. There are some ex-officio appointments. Uh, there are multiple tiers it 's important to note this board uh, it 's called the municipal accountability review board is not specific to hartford uh, in fact it's it 's a statewide board, and uh, cities or towns go into different tiers depending on their level of fiscal distress uh, and uh, you know hartford will uh, will be somewhere in one of those upper tiers. Uh, the the details of what the board looks like and how it uses its authority remain to be seen.
0: I want to thank Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin for joining us. Uh, thanks for giving us some of your time today. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Pat. Take care.
0: Uh, this is where we live today. We're talking about uh, the budget that was passed by the Connecticut General Assembly. In studio with me, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Um, when you were at the Capitol, when you were talking to uh, Mayor Bronan just a few minutes ago, Mark, I mean, how do the suburban legislators uh, feel about, again, uh, this uh, help that the, the legislature is now giving to the capital city?
2: It's a mixed bag. Uh, Connecticut is a state that can be extremely parochial. Um, there are, there are s- many suburban legislators, including the Speaker of the House uh, and including some of the Republican leaders who believe that the central cities must be stabilized Uh, For a variety of reasons, Um, you know, one is the economy is shifting uh, to a more, you know, millennials and businesses are more interested, it seems, in locating in urban areas, and that's one of the long-term problems that Connecticut faces. Some of its economic growth in the '70s was driven by companies fleeing cities, including New York City, and coming to Fairfield County. So, so there's that. Um, But yeah, there's. There's a tension there. There's a real tension there. You have people in the suburbs who, again, they they look down on Hartford uh, and and believe, you know, quote unquote, it's those people. There's a racial component at mm-hmm. times. Um Hartford is a minority uh, majority city. Uh, and so there's a lot packed into that. You know, one of the ironies is, you know, Hartford's pension, System has been better managed than most of the suburbs, really than any other community in this state. And part of that was how its charter was set up. Until the recession, Hartford had a pension fund that was a hundred percent plus funded. Uh, now it's dipped down to I think the mid seventies, but that's still pretty damn good compared to a lot of suburbs, including the the you know West Hartford, which in this area is considered kind of the gold standard. And they're down about fifty percent, you know. So, yeah.
0: I wanted to move on before we run out of time, uh, you know, a lot of attention um, has been uh, given and for good reason that uh, one of the gimmicks in this, uh, this budget deal that was passed is a reliance on $175 million coming from energy efficiency funds. I wanted to uh, play a clip from Representative uh, Rob Sampson from Wolcott uh, last week before the, before the vote.
2: This is money that is collected in your electric bill that goes into a fund that is used for the purpose of helping people find ways to save on their energy costs. But this is not money that is collected on behalf of the state. It's not a tax, it's not our money, it's their money. And for us to go in there and sweep $64 million per year, to me, is the equivalent
3: of theft.
0: Now he's talking about specifically the Connecticut Energy Efficiency Fund, but there's other money taken from the Green Bank and uh, the Reggie Coalition. Can you break it down for us, Mark?
2: You know, you you think you're listening to, you know, The Wizard of Oz with, you know, lions, tigers and bears, you know, lapses and sweeps and gimmicks. Oh, my. Um, So a sweep is what it sounds like. It's reaching into one of these segregated funds that has been raised by other methods. and, And in this case, it's money on your electric bill. Um, that was put into a fund where people could it, it'll you know low cost get their houses fixed energy you know to be more efficient um, by the way it's become a decent little industry it's small but growing it's you know thousands of jobs and in times of great need when you're trying to close it you know these are the things you do so yeah in in each of the two fiscal years it was 80 plus million. It's not as bad as was originally proposed. Um, this, this is also example of one of the dangers of, of sort of the recklessness that's inherent in budgeting this way. And I don't say that to be as critical as, as it sounds because at the end of the day, look, you get behind closed doors, you're trying to cut a deal. But not everything gets tested, not everything gets examined. And this was a great example. Um, this was also an example of advocates who quickly organized and did, with the help of the governor, shine a spotlight on something that I think a lot of people in Connecticut would say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And oh, by the way, it's a source of money that really isn't supposed to be used that way. Mm-hmm. So. They were able to convince, they were able to mitigate this, but not completely. Um, there are public policy implications of this. Um, Connecticut and other states have helped grow, you know, sort of green industry, and I'll use that broadly, um, you know, with, assist, with, a, with a variety of ways. There are tax credits, there are all kinds of incentives, and one of the problems has been this kind of yo-yoing, that one year, we love you, here, do this, and then two years later, not so much. So businesses, whether they're small solar businesses, whether they're larger businesses, they crave one thing about all, above all else, and that's stability. So that's another element of this. You're sort of destabilizing um, a small growing industry.
0: I wanted to hear from Connecticut's Consumer Council. Ellen Katz is on the phone with us now. Welcome to the show.
4: Good morning, thank you for having me.
0: Let's get your reaction uh, to uh, this raid on energy funds and the impact, Ellen.
4: Sure. Well, I'll start by saying I don't like it. Um, I think Mark laid out some of the reasons really well. And listen, let me just start by saying these are really difficult times, and I don't want to be a state legislator and trying to decide where you get, you know, where do you get money from when there simply isn't enough to go around. That said, this uh, these raids on the various energy efficiency funds, the clean energy fund, the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which is Reggie, and the green bank. They total 175 million dollars, and I'm not sure people realize the ex- exactly where these come from. These are a line item on your, for the most part, a line item on your utility bill that uh, essentially ratepayers agreed to pay to the tune of about 240 million dollars a year. Okay, so we are paying uh, as part of our electric bill um, and our and our energy bill and the natural gas bill 240 million dollars a year. And the the idea was well why why are we doing that because I, I essentially we made a deal with ratepayers um, that we'll invest these monies in energy efficiency and for every dollar you invest we'll get let's say you know estimates are about three dollars of savings on your electric bill so it looks like a really good investment um, and we've had stability in this fund for a number of years we've got um, a growing uh, but really robust green economy jobs associated with this and to now sweep the funds and, and this means we're not just going to take existing funds but for the next you know, year or so maybe a little bit longer we're going to be paying money on our electric bill that's supposed to be going into these these accounts for funding these clean energy projects and they'll actually be going uh, a chunk of it like of your electric bill funds about thirty five percent of it will now be going into the general fund Mm. and so it just is a tax okay so that if this goes forward as proposed they're essentially creating a tax on energy bills and the problem with that is that these kinds of taxes are very regressive i mean the the folks who are impacted the most are undoubtedly low-income households who pay enormous enormous shares of their total household budget to energy funds uh, to energy bills, um, you know, there's estimates of up to 25%. And so this is um, this is a real hit to consumers in that sense. And then you talk about what we'd be losing if we take such a big hit. I mean, this is about a 4% overall impact on the funds in general. And actually, I think it's a little bit higher. Um, but when you talk about the impact, um, there's uh, curtailment of, a lot of the programs that are supposed to be invested in. And there's a the perception, and I've heard it repeatedly, that, well, this energy efficiency fund just hands out light bulbs. And it's so much more than that. I mean, we invest in insulation and weatherization and other energies, other measures that reduce electric use. And so these cuts would potentially mean 14,000 low income households will not be served. Um, there will be 14,000 customers who don't receive rebates for investing in efficient air conditioners, heating equipment. Um, 1,700 businesses won't be served. Uh, there's an impact, job losses we predict of 6,885 over the next two years. I mean, these are real. Um, these are real people and real citizens who are going to face enormous impacts um, and. As, he, as Mark said, stability is part of what's essential for, for any um, business owner and also for, for Wall Street. So we talk about the Green Bank, which are often, the Green Bank projects are also often partnered with energy efficiency. And we make commitments years ahead as a state to funding at certain levels, and this kind of pulls the rug out from under them.
0: Ellen Katz is Consumer Council for Connecticut. Mark, could this be revisited? And if so, where will that money come from if it's not going to come from here?
2: It'll be revisited in February in the Mm -hmm. second year of the biennium. But before that, no. Um, This is baked in. Uh, The governor doesn't like it. But as we discussed earlier, uh, even if he vetoes the budget, um, the votes are certainly there to override. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I want to thank Ellen for joining us. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Coming up, municipal elections are next week. Turnout's often low. Why's that? Could part of the reason be residents have trouble finding out any information on local candidates? CTNewsJunkie.com has focused on this issue. We'll hear more after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you know what seats are up for election in your town? Municipal elections are next Tuesday, and to tell us more, Doug Hardy joins us now. He's business manager of CT News Junkie and creator of the Vote.CTNewsJunkie.com tool. Tell us about that, Doug.
3: Yeah, we we designed it to uh, we built it to fill a void. Uh, there's there's really not enough information available to voters before the before the elections for a variety of reasons. We're in the information age now, and People expect to just be able to Google up their candidates and figure out who they are and why they're qualified. And uh, essentially, uh, the news industry is, is sort of in a re- recession type of uh, situation, and, and there's fewer and fewer candidate profiles available. And, and even when, when news was booming, I don't know that we did enough candidate profiles as an industry. Um, so we, uh, a developer friend of ours, Mar- uh, Matt Zahia, uh, we were brainstorming with him about what we could do to help. Uh, and solve some problems. And, and this this was the idea we settled on. Uh, essentially, it's a crowdsourcing tool. Um, there's never going to be enough reporters to write a profile or, or write an article about every single candidate in in either a legislative uh, or a municipal election. There's There were 336 candidates for the legislature last year. That was our first version of this. Um, there are probably closer to 5,000 candidates in, uh, for municipal uh, elections here. So there's also no list. There's no single list anywhere of all these candidates. So, what we did is we created a, a tool that uh, allows us to send an invite to every candidate as long as we have that candidate's information. So we had to do an outreach to get the the information from the the town committee chairs, and so that was the first step this year. And then and then we sent the ask for. Uh, the rest of the candidates or at least the ones we had in the system. We have about 1,100 in the system. So you didn't get much of a response from these candidates? Um, we got about, uh, well, we're not we're not quite at 10% this year, but we're about 100. And uh, that's decent. Last year, we, we, for a variety of reasons, we only got the thing up and running two weeks before the election. So we didn't have a, a good a good lead in, but we, we got about 10% last year. So crowdsourcing is tough. You know, uh, in terms of uh, the amount of response, you're only as good as, you know, as the folks who take part. But What's really neat is that we've got candidates from 61 towns. We've got responses from, you know, from Goshen to Stonington to Willimannock, all the way to Danbury and Fairfield. It's, it's a, and there's a variety of people in here. They're all volunteers, first of all. So there's really not a, uh, you know, any kind of profit motive for any of these folks. And we've got people with multiple degrees, amazing talents. Uh, you know, the guy from Goshen is a, a former road foreman. Um, Woman from uh, Stonington has like four advanced degrees. She's running for board of ed, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really neat. It's really neat to see uh, these folks answering questions in a in a sincere way that is absolutely not toxic, like we're seeing at the national uh, in the national political discourse. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. pretty neat tool, and we're, we're really enjoying just just the amount of response we're getting.
0: I'd mentioned that turnout's historically low. I mean, what are we expecting to see next week?
3: And that's a good question, and I, you know, you were talking earlier about whether the amount of information available might have an impact on that, and I've been thinking about that. And uh, I don't know about you, but almost every election, every municipal election, I walk in and I look at the ballot and I think, I don't know who most of these people are. Never met them. Haven't even seen a photo.
0: And so, do often people vote on the party line? So I'm if they're sure they registered do. Democrat, let's just go straight across.
3: I'm sure they do. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they do. And there's some states that uh, don't even do the party line. They don't. They don't. They don't even list the uh, the party affiliation. I think in Oregon, they do that. I'm, curious. I'm curious about how that's working out for them. But uh, I, I think party line voting probably, you know, just from a psychological standpoint, party line voting probably has a bigger impact when you don't know anything about your candidates. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we're hoping, to, we're hoping that this tool will uh, not only, you know, create more engagement for us as a, as a digital news operation, but also uh, help people make better decisions and uh, engage locally.
0: Doug Hardy's business manager of com, creator of com, where you can go and learn some more about municipal uh, candidates uh, if they answered uh, the <laughs> questionnaires that uh, that Doug and his team sent out mark pasniokis is also here in studio capital bureau chief at the connecticut mirror you know no big races uh, next week uh, what are some of the mayoral races or that we should be following
2: it's kind of a down cycle this year um Many, not all, of the larger cities have gone to four-year terms for their mayors. So Luke Bronin in Hartford is not up. Uh, Mayor Gannum in Bridgeport is not up. But around the city, uh, around the state, uh, down in Danbury, Mark Boughton um, is facing opposition for the first time in, I believe, three elections. Uh, He's still heavily favored. But, you know, one of the issues for him is he's got one eye on statewide office as he tries to win another term as mayor. Uh, You have uh, down in Norwalk, uh, there's been some family uh, drama with the mayor of of Norwalk, Harry Rilling. He has a son who's a police officer who's had some drug issues, um, and that popped up uh, not long ago. Um, So this is all, you know, it reminds you that, you know, if all politics are local, local politics are really local. And, you know, you got some – you have issues that are unique to communities that drive people to the polls. Uh, For example, um, we saw um, some dramatic uh, turnover in primaries in Bloomfield. There was a lot of anger over how the town council the issue handled the issue of allowing a Niagara water bottling uh company to locate there and tap into the MDC. That was a, a huge issue there, and there were a lot of people who lost in a primary. You know, in Farmington, you had a big fight over a very expensive uh high school uh project. Uh so you know so it's hard to look for trends in these things after election night, certainly, depending on if there are any trends as far as Republicans or Democrats. The parties will be quick to claim it means something, even if it doesn't. Um, in New Britain, you know, you have, you know, something to look for is uh, there's a, a young rising star in Erin Stewart. She's a Republican mayor of a city that is Democratic, but yet has elected Republicans as mayors before, as mayors before, including her father. Um, you know, people will be looking to see how she does in that race um, to see if she's uh, enhanced or damaged at all as far as a potential statewide candidate. So those are some of the stories you see in local elections. You know, what will the impact be on individuals who may have uh, a future for higher office? Uh, again, are there any trends? Uh, Republicans hold a majority, uh, control a majority of uh, town halls in Connecticut. Although, if you look at the population, they tend to be the smaller places. But local elections sometimes do help local parties build an organization that can, you know, help going into the twenty eighteen elections. Not always, but it 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 can help. Um, will there be? Any impact from people's anger towards the General Assembly over, you know, the delays in local aid, this, uh, the fact that the budget passed will probably take some of the steam out of that. Um, I heard from local candidates who were very concerned that they were going to get blamed um, for what was happening in Hartford. So those are some of the cross currents that kind of come together on these things.
0: Uh, Doug Hardy, before uh, we head out of the show, um, what have you been hearing from people who have decided to run in these uh, local towns and cities? Uh, has the, You mentioned a little bit earlier there's not a lot of discord that you see from the national scene. But has that kind of catapulted people into thinking, well, let's try to make the change here locally?
3: Um, you know, there's... I'll be honest. A lot of the feedback has been I'm having I'm having a hard time finding the email. <laughs> so, so that, that sort of we've been dealing with a lot of technical issues. But folks have really appreciated the opportunity to to talk about their local issues. And of course, it's hard to develop questions, uh, a survey that covers all the local issues. Well, you know? I mean,
2: this is something that if people get in the habit of doing, you know, right. it's yeah, you're not getting a great, uh, you know, re- you know response right now. But right. if if this becomes, you know. If this is there every cycle, right. it can only grow, and that's great. I mean, the crowdsourcing can help, but I mean, as as I'm sure Doug would acknowledge, there's a limit because these are people answering questions, a little bit of spin. It's not the same as having a reporter out there, right. you know, kind of testing them. But it's it's certainly another
3: tool that hopefully will will grow in in use right. uh, going and, forward. You know, that's what we're hoping. And and uh, the, you know, the reality is is some of these towns, the parties don't even have websites. You know, that's that's the extreme. Like. There's no website where the parties are even collecting their own candidate profiles where they're, at, you know, providing information and answers to local questions. So uh, the other extreme is, is there's a local paper that's doing the candidate profiles, and, and there's, there's a lot more information than uh, – there's plenty of information that the candidates are being inundated, you know. But for the most part, these small towns, there's nothing, you know. And uh, if you are not engaged, if you're not one of the people, uh, the small number of people that shows up at a public meeting every, every week – you're not gonna you're not going have any idea, mm-hmm. you know, so you just sort of lean on uh the external input uh which is for by and large is pretty partisan and uh so you're not maybe you know at the local level, I will vote for anybody who I think is competent the party it doesn't matter you know, and that that's that takes a lot of discipline in a situation where you don't really know enough about people, so I really want to know i want to know. Before I go to the polls, I want to know. And uh, you had mentioned you guys are talking about trends just a second ago. And uh, election night is brutal. Election night is also a problem. Um, there's not enough information on election night. Our results take forever, and that's another problem that we're trying to deal with. But at the end of the day, we're we if we say trend, we mm. as a, as the news media, we better have the information.
0: Well, if you want to get more information on some of the municipal candidates running in your town, head to vote.ctnewsjunkie.com. And I want to thank Doug Hardy again, uh, who helped uh, uh, bring attention to this, business manager of ctnewsjunkie.com. Thanks, Doug.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: Also, Mark Pasniokis, thanks for breaking down some of the budget. Uh, we'll stay tuned to see what happens next from the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. This is where we live.